Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hey guys, it's Chris Shepard with your Westside Investors Network podcast. Just wanted you all to be aware there is a little bit of foul language in this podcast. So there's your disclaimer. Enjoy the show. We've got an amazing guest with us today. Brad Blumenthal will share his experience on how he started as an actor and made the jump into real estate investing. He will also give some tips on finding a good contractor, setting a timeline for rehab projects, and how to make a good offer when buying properties. So without further ado, let's welcome Brad Blumenthal. All right. Today we've got Brad Blumenthal with us. He is an actor and writer on TV films, publisher of children's books, and also real estate developer. Brad's out of New York. And Brad, you just want to start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I used to be in advertising. We took a company public. I got tired of that. I got divorced. Mayor Dinkins was mayor, so I moved out to L.A., to become an actor. And instead of waiting on tables, I ended up getting into the real estate business, which tend to be a little bit more lucrative than waiting on tables. And so most of my projects in the beginning were, you know, flipping houses, buying them, gutting them, renovating. And then the last few projects I did were substantial build, total real estate development of architectural homes, you know, iconic kind of California modern style in Hollywood Hills. And so that's what I did for about 15 years in LA. Mainly I did one in, in Denver. I did one out in, most of them were, were Los Angeles. I did one out in Topanga Canyon as well in California, but mostly on the West coast. Nice. So Brad, you moved to LA, want to become an actor. You're, you're looking for stardom. Like what gave you the idea to get into real estate? And like, how did you take that first step? That was totally by accident. I was at a Hollywood party and this big fat Latino guy called Refugio Gonzalez comes up to me. We just hit it off. His wife was great at the party. And towards the end, he says, you know, I'm a real estate broker. I said, really? Because on our side of the hill, which is you know, LA versus the Valley, you know, if you're fat or you're ugly, they literally bury you in a field. So I didn't know why he was a realtor. I said, really? He says, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, there's this auction of two houses by the Hollywood Bowl. Do you want to come with me? I said, sure. And he said, bring your checkbook just in case. So we go, it was a silent auction. A lot of people were there and he said, did you like either house? I said, yeah, I like this. They both were very nice Tudor homes, no views, but they were right by the Hollywood Bowl. And so it turned out, so he's, I put a bit in the, the starting bit on one house and he's put in the starting bit on the other house. 
And it turned out everyone that was there were just nosy neighbors. They weren't any developers, nobody. So we ended up owning houses. And that's how I got into the real estate biz. That is I didn't know it. I didn't know any <laughs> contractors. I didn't know any, I, you know, I didn't think I'd own a house and, and that's how I got started. So that, that house was 183,000 and 15 projects later, the last one sold for 25 million. Wow. That's quite a, I guess, ramp to go up with that first project. Like you went to basically an open auction. I actually just got noticed that Washington County is going to be auctioning off properties again here in Portland, which hasn't been done like in the past three or four years. But like you went not really thinking you were going to put in a bid. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I I just wanted to see how the process went. This was not a state, what do you call it when someone died? It was a probate auction because the guy outlived all his beneficiaries so the first the organization that got the the homes was the botanical society or something in the park park recreations ended up getting the houses so they auctioned it off wow but you're right i wasn't planning on owning a home in la i just got done with a messy divorce she hired ivana trump's attorney i didn't have a lot of available cash but it was enough to buy this and since it was your first home in that state, you got one of those HOA loans for 95% financing. So I only had to put 5% down. That's incredible. And so you just, you just fell into it and you're. That's how I do pretty much everything. I was in the music business. I fell into that. We signed a kid to Geffen Records. I mean, I've been in like 13 different businesses and I don't think any of them I actually plan on being in except maybe advertising. Do you still talk to that mentor today? Like, can you tell us a little bit more about how that relationship you mean Refug- uh, Refugio? Well, yeah, he, yeah. He was it just up- that one? Was that just that one yeah, instance, yeah. or did no, like was- you continue no, doing no, more no. stuff? He with was him? on the other side of the hill, as they say in L.A. He was in the valley. We did these homes. He did his home. I did mine. I I think we might have flipped them around the same time. I'm not sure. He might still own. I have no idea. But once I started getting a little famous with the houses, I thought I'd let him know that what he started ended up ending up pretty good. So I try to track him down. He ends up getting divorced and teaching in Hawaii. So I don't know. Oh, wow. so I think he left the real or maybe he's doing some real estate in Hawaii. I don't know. But it was it was great to get in touch with him again and let him know what monster he had created. <laughs> That's super fun. Yeah. So, Brad, where do you think your entrepreneurial spirit comes from? From the age of about eight. I didn't have much of a family growing up. And so I had to hustle at a very early age. So I think I was pretty entrepreneurial from a very, very early age from selling creepy crawlers in school to, you know, buying candy and then reselling it in school to running a blackjack game in high school to, you know, I always had wheeling and dealing. And and then when I did three colleges in a year and a quarter, so I'm not an academic guy. I'm more of a street smarts guy. 
And so I go, I go by Mark Twain's favorite quote. I never let schooling interfere with my education. <laughs> oh, that's such a good line. I never let schooling interfere with my education. And yeah. And I've, I've lived by that. I learned the hard way. Unfortunately, I make my mistakes by doing, not by reading. And, you know, I just throw myself into it and, and see what happens. That's one kind of tenet from our real estate philosophy is that you have to act. Like you've got to jump in, you've got to dive in and take that risk. And there's no time like the present to start, I mean, especially you know, long-term real estate investing. And that's such a good philosophy to just ready, fire, aim. Correct. Yep. So Brad, do you want to talk about like, how was your Hollywood experience? I mean, I'm particularly interested. You were in one of my favorite movies, Hook, right? Yeah. Hook was good. The one that everyone seems to love the most is Pulp Fiction. Hook was sort of interesting because I was only in town maybe two months from New York. And it's sort of a cool story if you have time. Yeah. You know, I was a big shot in advertising and I came from a business background. And back in those days, they had what's sort of like a backstage. And in the back of it is casting notices. And you you always send your, your headshots in and hope to God someone calls you. And they say in the beginning, in acting, you're better off, you know, just being an extra, just so you can get on the sets and see how it's done. And it's better to be an extra when it's only like 10 people. So maybe you get bumped up. So I had this TV show commitment for Thursday to hand out an award on an award show or something. Anyway, so then I get a call from this woman who says, Brad, there's this movie we'd like you to be in. It shoots Thursday and Tuesday. I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm already booked Thursday. And she's, I said, can I just do Tuesday? She said, no, it's a two-scene role for that character. I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm committed. So she says, okay. So she hangs up. Ten minutes goes by. The phone rings again. She says, Brad, I would never ask you to back out on a commitment, but Stephen has personally picked out your headshot. So I go, Stephen who? I mean, what the hell are you talking about? She goes, Spielberg. So now I think it's a prank. <laughs> now I think it's a prank call <laughs> because on, on the casting notice that I sent for that film, it didn't say hook. It didn't say anything. They were really hush hush about it. So I said, I don't want to sound like a wise ass, but since when does Spielberg pick extras for his movies? And then she starts sweating bullets. She says, Brad, please, please understand that you're going to meet more people in these two days than you will your entire life. And no, it's not in Spielberg's vocabulary. I mean, this is an extras agency. Can you imagine them going back to Spielberg saying the guy can't do it? And I didn't know any better. I was naive because I, I come from a business. Once you commit to somebody, you can't say, you know, screw them. So I said, well, I, I'm sorry. I'll have to call you back. And so she must have knows what bricks she was shitting at that point. So I call the, I'm perplexed. I call the TV company and I say, hey, I, I got a little bit of a dilemma here. And I'm halfway, not even halfway through my explanation. They said, are you an idiot? Take the Spielberg gig. We'll find some other moron to hand out a trophy. You're crazy. <laughs> Don't turn that down. So I call her back. She's so excited, blah, blah, blah. She's like, now her job has been saved. So I go to the set 
it was that TriStar Pictures because I'm, I'm in the office scene in the beginning of the film and like 40 extras are there. And I'm reading a book about called Real Power. It's about the industry because obviously I know nothing about it. Four hours goes by and they finally get everybody but me. And I go, oh, shit. Now, you know, they've ordered too many people. They're going to send me home. Two more hours goes by. I'm on page 165 of the book. And they come down and get me. The elevator goes up to the floor. You can hear a pin drop. Everyone's been set. I walk down the hallway. And the AD at that time was Bruce Cohen, who ended up being a a pretty good director. He did the Flintstones and a bunch of other films. Anyway, he says, Brad Blumenthal, this is Dustin Hoffman. I go, hi, Dustin. (laughs) Dustin actually directed the actors on that film, not Spielberg. Oh, really? so, so, so I go, hi, Dustin. And then Robin Williams walks up and, and Dustin says, Brad Blumenthal, this is Robin Williams. I go, hey, Robin. And then a little bearded guy with a baseball cap comes walking in it. And he says, and Brad Blumenthal, this is Steven Spielberg. And I go, hey, Steven. And he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. Robin Williams is going to come up to you. He's going to go, Jerry, John, and you're going to correct him. You're going to say Jim because that's your name. I said, OK. So we rehearsed it a couple of times and we ran it and it was fun. And Robin is like always joking on set. They rapped. And because I said, Jim, that's a line. So they taft Hartley me into the union, which usually takes years or months for people to, you know, somehow get into the union because it's a catch 22. You can't get in the union unless you've got an acting gig, but you can't get an acting gig unless you're in the union. Anyway. So I'm in the corporate office of some big mega, mega guy at, at TriStar. And I'm calling everyone back in New York. I said, I'm ahead of schedule. I'm in a Spielberg film. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then the entire time I, I wasn't in my scene, I'm following Spielberg around like a little lapdog, just, you know, trying to see how it's all done. And he didn't mind at all. And then Tuesday was a scene videotaping the ball game at the park. And I start to go down to the rest of the extras and they go, Mr. Blumenthal, let me show you to your trailer. Because the minute you're an actor, it's favorite nations. If, you know, whoever has a trailer, everyone has a trailer. And then there's a massage chair on set and there's a masseuse that gives you a massage. I mean, it was it was great. So that's how I got into the acting biz. That's pretty incredible that you got handpicked and uh... and then I turned it down. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's looking back at it, I go, Jesus Christ. Anyway, that was my first role. And your big start. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a couple months into Hollywood. And then you bought that first house sometime between then and like your first role. And yeah. So when did your real estate career kind of go after your acting career picked up? Well, the minute I did the first house, I got the bug. And then I started looking at opportunities and bought, bought and sold, bought and sold, bought and sold. You know, I had a major, you know, when you're in that kind of a business where you're a flipper, realtors love you to death and their offices love you to death because they know they got you in and they know within a year they got you out. So, you know, they love developers versus, you know, Judy Schweitzbaum, who buys a house that took forever, and then she doesn't sell it for 20 years. You know, 
they love, you know, most realtors love developers because they're the ones that bring them the most coin. Yeah. You know, one thing in real estate that's like so nice is the freedom. I mean, like you came to LA and doing this development flipping type stuff. I mean, it really allowed you to pursue your acting career as well, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, as you say, when you're in the real estate business, you have your own hours. And when I also got in the music business at the same time I was doing houses, that was the same kind of thing. I mean, it was a little different because we had a meeting with Universal, you know, Geffen Records or whatever. We'd have obviously have a meeting, but I could I could work around that just like I could work around auditions or work around, you know, doing a week on a movie or something. It was pretty flexible. And I kind of just want to dig in maybe a little bit back to the, 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 your first, your first one that you jumped into. I mean, like, how did you feel when you jumped into that? Like, it, it doesn't sound like you had very much experience. I mean, were you scared? Zero. Were you zero. scared? Were you scared? No, you, you, like, didn't, you didn't really have time to be, I, listen, I'm a New Yorker. So <laughs> scared is not usually in our vocabulary. Yeah. I so mean, that's, no, a, you, that's a fairly big risk for a lot of people. Yeah, for me, it's, you know, I'm used to all kinds of stuff. Listen, I've been rich and poor three times. So, you know, <laughs> buying a house for 185 with 5% down is not a big deal. You know, you ask around and I had some crazy subs that I used and I got in, I got, I didn't make a fortune. I don't think I made much, maybe 20 grand or something. I didn't, I didn't make a hell of a lot. I learned a lot. And then, as you know, as you do house after house after house, you get better and better subs and you, you start to learn it better and you, you get a great as on the West Coast. I don't know if it is in Portland, unlike the East Coast, you go through escrow. Do you do that in, in Oregon yep. or you go through yep. lawyers? Yeah, that's so on the West Coast. The you tend to use escrow. So I, I had a great escrow company that I use escrow officer that did all my deals and she would you know, run in front of a truck for me. So if I knew things were going south or they were things we had to to do, you know, I was very, very well protected. People take escrow for granted, but it's a very important part of the process. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So like for our listeners, like what sort of advice could you give them on, you know, how to like start out finding those subs and then like really improving upon those subcontractors? Because I know a lot of our listeners do some flips or, or, or in some aspect well, in the real estate industry. Well, here's a trick that I use that most people don't know or, or handle real estate. And this goes before finding subs. On the real estate business, there's two things I like to do. I like to pick times where real estate is not that act for sellers, which is obviously Christmas and in the summer on the West Coast. Those are key times where you don't have as many people bargaining for the same homes. And I like to put in multiple offers, lowballing on several projects that are interesting to me because someone's going to be desperate at some point. A lot of developers that do what I do, they really try to haggle on the house price. And they try to get them down, which I do, but I don't go crazy. I wait till I own the house. And then during the contingency period, you have obviously an inspection. And inspections always come back with a bunch of crap. That's when you get them down further. Because now you've got the house. 
They don't want it to fall out of escrow because then they got to relist it. It looks bad. It cheapens the, the property again. So the power comes into your realm, not the seller's. And a lot of people try to do both. You know, they get them down as much as they possibly can. Then they get the inspection report and then they beat them up even further. But the best, the most important thing is to get the house. And then if you get in a case where it's multiple offers, you don't get into the bidding war. You just tell the selling agent, listen, whatever the, the highest offer is, we'll beat it by 10 grand, 50 grand, depending on the price of the house, you know, whatever your sweet number has to be. Say whatever the final number is, we'll beat it by 10, 20, you know, 50, 100 grand, you know, if it's a $20 million house, whatever the price point is, is what you, you tell them. As far as subs are concerned and how to find them, you talk to other developers. A lot of times your realtor knows good subs. A lot of times, obviously, your, your main contractor. I do not recommend, like I did in the beginning, try to do the house yourself as you being the general contractor. That to me is a huge mistake. The ball's got to stop somewhere or the buck's got to stop somewhere. And if some sub screws up, you're screwed. As opposed to if you have a contractor, obviously you pay maybe 15% above what the project normally would have cost you. The agita and the lawsuits and the blah, everything else all falls on the contractor. And that's the contractor is usually responsible for finding the subs. Obviously, I have subs that could double bid what my contractor sub brings in. And that's that's fine, too. And, you know, since you're the owner, they'll look at that sub as well. But I think having a general contractor, even on a small gig, is important. That's great advice, Brad. One of the things that we've kind of experienced when trying to find subs or contractors is that like the way that you present yourself or the way that we've presented ourselves and the project has been very helpful too. just making sure that all of our ducks are in a row. We know exactly what we want, especially in a time like this, where there are a lot fewer contractors than there are projects. We found that contractors are kind of picking and choosing property owners to work for. And, you know, they would much rather work for the flipper who is turning, you know, four, five, six projects a year versus the old lady who's going to take five years to complete her project and, you know, live in the house for 20 years. So. Right. And that's, you know, obviously contractors know that they have a they know the minute they talk to someone who's right, who's wrong. But the one thing you have to be weary of, which always happens, if you use the same subs, they always think you're going to use them again. So they end up not showing up. They end up having their son show up and the prices aren't competitive anymore. So you always have to, it's just like buying a home and getting a mortgage. I always double app. I recommend that to everybody. Always double app alone. Don't rely on one mortgage broker. Don't rely on one bank. You know, always have a couple of people competing for that loan. And it's the same thing with contractors and subs. You know, everything you got to bid out, whether you've got a loyal sub or not, because 
you'll see after two or three projects, their pricing becomes not that competitive anymore. Yeah, they, that's exactly take, what happens. They start feeling they can take advantage. They're like, oh, they're just going to use me no matter what. And yeah, they're yeah. Like, and yeah. It's, and, it's, and you got to remind them, hey, this isn't a government project. So <laughs> contract, because, you know, when, you, when you're sanctioned by the government, because I've done some deals with them, not real estate, some other stuff I did. You know, once you're sanctioned, you can rip them off as much as you as you want. They don't they don't ever question your bills or anything. They just you know write the checks. Yeah. Well, that is good advice. It's trust but verify is one Correct. thing that I always like saying is like, you know, you start working with someone and you like them, and that's who you do business with. Is you do business with people you like and trust. But you know, sometimes you just gotta you gotta double check. And yeah. I think that's that's really good practice. So yeah. Well, Chris, yeah. what do you think? You got any more questions or should we get on to the, the last four? And the other thing, one last thing, when you deal with subs and contractors, you got to give them timelines. You got to see, you got to have a timetable for them and a production schedule, a construction schedule or else. That, that, is, also real, that is also really good advice. Chris loves to give them a bonus if they finish on time and writes it into the contract. He's like, if you can finish by this date, I will give you X extra money. Little well, 50%. That's, well, that's good and bad because then <laughs> a lot of times they'll cut corners to re- reach a deadline for the money. You got to be careful. You got to be much more hands-on if you take that approach to make sure that the work that's being done is quality. And they're not, you know, cutting corners with materials or, you know, things that they could cover up. It's tougher on my kind of stuff because it's, I do California modern instead of Spanish or other styles. And when you do California modern, it's very, very difficult to hide anything because the lines are so clean and you're, but anyway, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, you know, when it comes to that schedule, we've always found that the first week cramming in as much work as possible during that first week is essential. We're, we're closing on a house today, actually. And I have the roofers tearing off the roof, you know, the second that we take possession and like the painter is coming in on Friday and it's, it's just like extremely regimented out during those first few days. And all the contractors know that, Hey, there's a sense of urgency around this project and it needs to get done quickly. I'm the opposite, Chris. I find the urgency is always there in the beginning. It's the last final weeks of a project is what kills you to death between the building and safety and the contractors not fin- finishing the punch list. And I always like to keep a, a good pot of their money in escrow until the job is completely done. That is an essential tip too. getting the like last parts of the project done are always the most difficult because there's so many little details that need to be resolved as opposed to just tear off the roof. Somebody can tear off the roof in eight hours. And, you know, well, I got, I, I had a house that I did in Doheny Estates where I literally demoed the house three days before I actually owned it. (laughs) <laughs> the crew come in and we luckily the owner never bothered going back to the property <laughs> or else I would have had a lucky might, little might, lawsuit. Might, 
I might have had your hands in the cookie jar there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a very, I mean, I don't know what Portland is like, but L.A. is the most litigious town I've ever been in. I had two houses that I did where I had three lawsuits per house. Oh, wow. Which is another piece of advice I could give people is find a great real estate attorney and a great litigator because when you get in a dispute, which is almost unavoidable in the real estate business, at least it is in LA, you want to play hardball from the very, very beginning. If they know that you have a litigating real estate attorney versus, you know, a regular realtor attorney, they know you mean business and you tend to get a settlement way before the whole court crap starts. So play hardball from the very, very beginning to try to get a agreement. And I like in all my contracts, they usually have an arbitration clause. I want a mediation clause. Yeah. You much rather mediate than go into arbit- arbitration. I, I did one of those. It's, it's like a lawsuit. Yeah. It's almost it's just, as expensive as a lawsuit. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's yeah. gut wrenching. So I insist on mediation. We, we, we have not been through an arbitration yet, luckily. Cross our fingers, knock on wood. But Well, move uh, to L.A., you'll be in several. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to put that on our list. <laughs> yeah, stay out of L.A. Yeah. All right. We, time, for us, time for us to get on to the last four questions. I'm going to start it off with the first one, which is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? find a mentor. I think it's very, very important. And most people are flattered if you ask them if they could be your mentor. Find someone who you really appreciate. Hopefully it's not a family member, but you know, find someone who you have some kind of a relationship with. And even someone that's not someone you don't have a relationship with and find some big dude in the business or woman that knows her shit and ask if they could be your mentor. And finding someone that, that has the knowledge that can help you and give you advice and like we're doing now is really important to find someone first starting out. Yeah, that is uh, great advice. You know, finding someone that's walked in, in, the, in your shoes, to just even, even if they're just a couple steps ahead of you. is Yeah, because great. they all started where you started and they yeah. all have a appreciation for that. And anyway... And it's not to say that like you have to have one mentor throughout your whole life. Like there's, you can have different mentors through different walks of of your life too, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we all love the hard knocks, but having someone to tell you about their hard knocks is pretty nice. All right. Our next question. So you already touched on this a little bit, but what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Why don't you pick your favorite? I didn't, I didn't touch on the first one because I asked you that in an email. My first was getting in the schmata business. I don't know if you guys know what that is. The the clothing business. It's a Jewish term in the clothing business. So there's a game, there's a sport very popular in the East and the Midwest played in the winter called platform tennis. And we developed a, a fashion for platform tennis. It's a, it was a sweater and this mitten that fits over the handle of the paddle. 
because you're playing in zero degree, 10 degree, 15 degree weather. So you're able to have a barehanded grip on the paddle, yet you have warmth, you have a sweater around it, and then the sweater matched the actual mitten. And believe it or not, I, I was 19 or 20 years old. We got it in Saks Fifth Avenue. We got <laughs> major awesome. tournament players to wear it. I got it written up in Esquire magazine. And WWD, I don't know if you know what that is, but that's the rag for the fashion business. It's called Women's Wear Daily. Every year they have the fabric of the year and the fabric that we chose, that I chose for that was chenille and chenille was the fabric of the year and blah, blah, blah. So that was the first entrepreneurial gig that I had when I quit college. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's pretty fun. So yeah. did you did you end up selling the business or I guess kind of no, what what, what no. ended up happening with it if I can ask a follow-up question? Yeah, well we had a whole soccer line yeah. to go forward and, and that was right when soccer was taking off. It turned out that this was an acrylic chenille, so there was only one mill in all of America that could do it out of Chicago. And since our since we had to double our order. It was still, we were still low on the totem pole. So they had to cater to their bigger clients. They couldn't even fulfill our double order. Uh, And so we got screwed. So, you know, we couldn't supply it. Sounds like an incredible experience. And it sounds like you learned a lot. So I'm sure it was very beneficial. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Then I was in the jewelry business and the advertising business and consulting. Anyway, I could go on and on. But yeah, that was... Yeah, that was it. The music business was sort of fun, although I don't recommend it. That's a nasty, nasty industry. Mm. All right. All right. So next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? This one we did touch on. I have no formal training. And so like we discussed before, it's just street smarts. It's getting in and doing it, making your mistakes. Learn. I mean, every house I've done, I've made a major mistake and I've, I've learned from them. I think there's only one house that I did, the second to last one, where I made very few mistakes. I I didn't even make a major mistake other than doing it during the housing bubble bursting Uh. (laughs) in 2009. But I'm about the only guy I know in my business that actually made money selling a house at that time. Wow. One side question. So... I mean, you, you started out with that $180,000 house and you ended with the $25 million house. Like, how did you choose to, and how were you able to be so aggressive in like stepping up? I guess as one person put it, I, I have a big pair of brass balls. I guess you just, you know, if there's an opportunity there, you go for it. When you're at it, as long as I was at it, it was never, ever a question to me whether I was going to make money on a project. It's how much. I wouldn't get in a project unless I knew I would double my money. I mean, that was my line. I would not buy a property unless I knew I would double my, my, my money. Yeah, and, like your, uh, your down and, payment and, or what you had to put yeah, into Yeah, yeah. The last house that we sold, we made $9 million on a $25 million house. And the house before that, that I sold for 9.1, I made, I think 2.6, two, or maybe three. I don't even remember. I'm not, 
I should keep track of this a lot better, but <laughs> the money comes in, the money goes out. It's just, you know, it goes into the next project and, yeah, you know, I'm always living on a, on a, on a string. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Okay. So our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? My biggest mistake was selling my loft on 18th street in Manhattan. That's sort of a funny story. So anyway, when I moved out to L.A., I kept the loft that I bought in 1982 on 18th Street between 5th and 6th. I bought it at a time when there was nothing going on in that area, which is hard to believe now since the Flatiron District is one of the most popular areas in New York. Anyway, I had this loft, so I rented it out. I had a company that would rent it out for me while I lived in L.A., and that went on for about five or six years. And then the, the woman, this nasty, nasty woman who I helped get elected on the board because she's just a tough, tough cookie. She's horrible. But as, a, as the president of a board, she's the kind of person you want. She has fangs about a foot long. Anyway, she calls <laughs> me and she says, not hello, Brad. She says, we're suing you. I go, Michelle, what the hell are you? You know damn well what we're talking about. I said, no, I do not know what you're talking about. <laughs> you rented your house to a, a 900 phone sex company. Uh-huh. And I said, what? Because the lease that I signed was just so-and-so corporation. I had no idea. It's the same phone sex company that has a loft on the third floor. And they just wanted my loft. And it's owned by the mob, by the way. So uh-huh. it was owned. I was on the eighth floor. And you're not allowed to have a commercial enterprise on the eighth floor, even though she has one. And it turned out that they just wanted it for support for accounting and stuff like that. So we had to come to an agreement to put money in escrow. They they could only have so many phone lines, blah, blah, blah. I was so bitter by that. After that lease was all right, I just sold the place at the highest price it was worth at the time, which was 550 grand. A year later, it was worth 1.2 million, probably worth three and a half now. And so, and what I learned from that is you never sell New York real estate. It's all, (laughs) you're dealing with an island. LA, you're dealing with great weather, you know, 12 months out of the year. In New York, you're dealing with real estate on an island which is the most, you know, it's the most cultural, it's the, the finance industry, is the, everything is there. And anytime you sell in New York, there is no right time to sell in New York because the prices will always go up. Yeah, that is a good story. I like it. We always try to hold on to our real estate as well, as much as possible. And, but once it becomes a problem, you know, like once you've got that big problem, that's, it's tough not to sell, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't flip in New York. I flip in LA and I don't hold property in LA and LA has appreciated as well, but I like to get in and get out. I don't like to rent out. I don't like the headaches of being a landlord. I can't stand it. I've done it. I don't need those headaches. So I like to get in, flip it. And plus, I mean, the last house we had, costs us 50 grand a month just to maintain between the taxes and the property itself. And that's another thing I do on my bigger projects is I rent them out for television, print, 
obviously you get to approve each one and that gets you a cash flow at it until the house sells. And the last house I did is probably the most televised house in history. It was on the Soji Olympics, the Academy Awards. It's been in Cadillac, Xbox, a Gwyneth Paltrow thing, a Christine Aguilera thing. I mean, that house is all over the place. Wow. That's, so, that's a great way to monetize your, your other job and like how, using those. Yeah, you have to. I, I, awesome. I, had a, I had a guy who, who helped me get into this business on a bigger scale. He used to rent his house out to porn shoots. I mean, that's what, and you'd, believe, you'd be surprised how much money he was able to bring in until he sold it. So I went one step better than porn shoots. So, uh, <laughs> but that's critical. And obviously, you know, the other number one real estate rule is you got to stage your house. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and bring in an artwork. I had a great connection uh, relationship. I, I got and with a major gallery in LA and, and he, he did my last two homes. That's fun. So we, you know, we put a couple of million bucks worth of artwork on the walls. Well, Brad, I think our time is up here, but I wanted to say thank you very much for being yeah. on the show. We really appreciate Thanks. it. Stories. No problem. If our audience wants to get a hold of you, do you want to give out any contact information for them? Yeah, my email is amazonmaryaxbeasonboy r a d is in dog l y at mac.com awesome well again thank, if i give my phone number that could be that could be <laughs> well again uh, we really appreciate you being on the show and yeah thank you you're welcome thank you thanks brad Bye. Tap. thank you for listening to this episode of the real estate professionals investing podcast on win your community of investing knowledge for growth We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.